Welcome to People's Church. Before we get to this week's message with Pastor Tom Murray, we want you to know that you matter to your Heavenly Father and you matter to us. People's Church is a multi-generational faith community in Salem, committed to knowing Christ and making Him known. Sunday morning worship services at our Salem campus are at 8.30, 10, and 11.30. Watch messages anytime and plan your visit at peopleschurch.com. We pray this practical, biblical teaching is encouraging, challenging, and possibly even life-changing. Well, it's good to see you this morning. We want to begin by saying congratulations today to Pastor Hans and his wife, Carissa. They became parents. We welcome... Don't look around in the sanctuary. They're not here today. This, like, just happened, all right? So we are, we are so excited for the Molers and also Cindy and Larry Wilson, who become grandparents. So congratulations to everybody. Uh, last week, I shared with you that we had recently reconnected with a church in Ukraine that we helped to start about three, 30 years ago, three decades ago, People's Church Odessa, Ukraine. Uh, a team from our, our church was there along with uh, the Marchese's, Pastor Marchese, and we recently reconnected with that church community. They're now, they now have about a thousand members, and they are right there in this country that is currently torn by war. And as we reconnected, we asked our missionary uh, partners who are working alongside this church, is there anything that we at People's Church Salem can do to help or serve People's Church Odessa, Ukraine? And the missionary said, well, I know they have been praying for a van, a, a van bus that they could use to bring humanitarian aid into enemy-held areas to bring humanitarian aid and to help evacuate people out. And we said, well, how much would the van cost? And they said, well, the, with the exchange rate and everything, it would be about $18,000 U.S. And I said, I think that we can help. And last week, I told you, I thought that we could actually do more than help. I thought we could actually come alongside this church and buy the whole van for them. And I'm excited to share with you this morning that we have raised above and beyond the $18,000. So we are working now on, on getting the money there uh, safely and securely to purchase the van. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your generosity. Uh, Pastor Pat had shared with me that we had more than 100 uh, households give to that, which was also just really encouraging to see so many people part of that investment. It is Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday begins what we know as Holy Week. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday launched the week that changed world history. Even if you're not a Christian, you likely know the broad strokes Details of Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. The crowds wave palm branches and they shout, Hosanna. And just days later, Judas betrayed Jesus and Jesus is sentenced to a criminal's death on a cross even though he committed no crime. Now beneath that, beneath the surface, at the time of the triumphal entry, there was incredible tension in Jerusalem and the surrounding area over who Jesus is. 
there are these different positions and based on the different positions where people landed there was groups that were formed uh, based on their perception of who Jesus is so those who thought that Jesus had come to be this um, revolutionary political leader they cheered Jesus on as he entered the city believing that he was arriving to bring the Jewish people into a time of freedom from Roman oppression. Then there were the religious elites. They viewed Jesus as an enemy to the religious tradition and they also viewed Jesus as an enemy to their positions of influence. And so they plotted Jesus' death. They thought the only way this could be resolved was to bring an end to Jesus. To give you insight, to give us insight on where people were in terms of understanding who Jesus is at the time of the triumphal entry, John 12, 37 says, despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, despite all the miraculous signs, most, most of the people still did not believe in him. You see, what happened then and what can still happen today is their own views and their own motives close their minds to the reality of who Jesus is. 2,000 years later, there is certainly not agreement today about who Jesus is. Maybe you've heard a statistic like this. Half of Americans believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. The vast majority of Americans would say that Jesus was a person who walked the earth, yet about half would hold back from saying that Jesus is God. Whenever we talk about the position that Jesus was nothing more than a great teacher, I like to encourage you that if, it, if that is your view, you should read the words of Jesus. And you could have a red letter Bible and you could read exactly what he taught. It's what... It's important to know the teachings of Jesus. And I wanted to share, these are some of the things that Jesus taught. Jesus taught, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Jesus taught that. Jesus taught, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus taught that. Jesus also taught, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses his own soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. The leader of the Barna Group, an organization that does research into matters of faith, says this, there isn't much argument about whether Jesus Christ actually was a historical person but nearly everything else about his life generates enormous and sometimes rancorous debate. I haven't used the word rancorous in a sentence in a while or ever. <laughs> so I had to look up what it means. And rancor is bitterness and hostility that is deep-seated and long-lasting. And doesn't that describe the disagreement about the nature of Jesus these 2,000 years after his death and resurrection. Deep-seated and long-lasting division. What we're about to see today is that most wanted to be near Jesus. Many wanted to know about Jesus. 
Many, many were open to experiencing the miraculous. They wanted to be near Jesus for the purpose of healing, for the purpose of provision and protection. Many will pursue Jesus during moments of desperation. This may be your story or the story of someone you know. Someone who wanted nothing to do with faith, yet they reached a moment in their life when they were in crisis, they were in desperation, and they cried out, Jesus, if you're real, make it known right now. With all those things being true, what is also true is that many will also turn their back on Jesus when the pressure increases. From the beginning, there's been a curiosity about Jesus. Curiosity is good. Thank God that he wired us for curiosity. We have a 10, 8, 5, and 2-year-old, and I love watching them be curious. It's so encouraging to watch them experience things for the first time. Like, what happens when you push a stack of blocks down the stairs? Curiosity is a good thing. Curiosity is to explore, to investigate, to learn, and to observe. We recently watched a documentary that featured these guys who go cave diving. Do we have any cave divers in the room? The, the chances of us having a professional cave diver are very low. I've learned that there are only about 75 professional cave divers in the whole world. Why? Because it's insane. Cave diving has been described as diving with no direct access to the open air, to the surface of the sun. Cave diving is different from cavern diving. Cavern diving is when you go into the depths, but you can look up, and even as you go to the rocks, you can see the sunlight above you. Cave diving is when you see nothing. You see darkness. Cave diving is into areas with no natural light or limited natural light, very little visibility with uh, expeditions going into the caves that often last several hours and go on for many miles. We saw this in the context of a rescue documentary, but some people actually do this for joy. I'm curious about cave diving. I was fascinated by this. I would never do it. I'll watch the movies, but I'm not going there and you would not want me on your cave rescue team. <laughs> I'm curious about cave diving, but that does not make me a cave diver, no matter how many books and documentaries I watch, even if I were to meet another cave diver. Curiosity is not the same as commitment. It is possible that we can live a life fully curious about Jesus, which is a good thing. But our relationship may stop short of a commitment, and curiosity is not a commitment. Enduring faith in Christ is built on commitment, not simply curiosity. Faith that never gets past curiosity, what happens when the pressure increases? What happens when culture moves away? What happens when the crowd wants to go in a different direction? A faith that is based on curiosity is likely to follow the crowd. Faith that is based on a commitment endures. So as we talk for just a minute today about Palm Sunday, I want you to look with me at John chapter 12. I really appreciate John because he brings such a special perspective 
to his account, his narrative of the triumphal entry. Why? Because John was one of the 12 disciples, and even beyond that, John is in the inner circle of three uh, with Jesus, along with his brother James and Peter. John was there. John is more than an eyewitness. John is a participant. And John is there to walk this entry into Jerusalem with Jesus. Three years of walking and talking with Jesus all lead up to this moment, this week that we know as Holy Week. John, writing his account of the gospel decades later, near the end of his life, surely this moment was seared in his memory forever. As John puts words on the page, it's obvious that John sees more than faces in the crowd along the streets of Jerusalem. And I'll show you this in just a moment. He sees people who he recognizes. He sees people who witnessed miracles. John sees people who heard the teachings. You see, John writes that just before the Passover celebration in Jerusalem, I'm just going to summarize this for you, but if you want, you could turn back just a few um, verses and you can read about this. John writes that just before the Passover celebration in Jerusalem, there was a dinner celebration just down the road in Bethany. Bethany is where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus is there at the celebration with his sisters who are Mary and Martha. I didn't test the first two services, but I just knew that you knew the answer. See, Martha, uh, John tells us that Martha served at this big celebration, this banquet, and this moment happens at the banquet where Mary pours expensive ointment on Jesus' feet and then wipes it with her hair. The reason I bring this up is look at who John says is in the crowd in Jerusalem for the moment that we call the triumphal entry. John 12, 12. The next day... The large crowd that had come to the feast, that Jesus heard that Jesus was coming. So the crowd that came to the feast, the crowd that came to this celebration at the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, the crowd that's at the feast, they now hear that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. John makes a direct connection between this feast and the triumphal entry. He sees the same people. For several years before the pandemic, uh, we would walk in the 4th of July parade with the, the kids. Actually, it was my job usually to walk with the kids, and we seemed to have an infant for like ever, and so... Jennifer would stay with the little one, and then I would be with one on a tricycle and one on a bicycle, and it was downhill, and we were trying to keep the kids from riding their bikes, which were decorated with the streamers and the twirlies and these things, like trying to not yell at them in front of the people as we're walking down the, down the hill. But as we're in the parade, have you ever been in a parade or walked in a parade? What happens if you're in a parade? You look at the side of the streets if it's in your hometown, and it's, it's some strangers, but what do you also see? You see people who you know. You see familiar faces. In the similar way, John is walking with Jesus and the other disciples entering into Jerusalem, and they see people who they recognize, people who are at the feast. 
As this is unfolding, there's a public tension. And John tells us that the religious elite had become increasingly agitated because people were abandoning their long-held religious traditions in favor of following Jesus. And so here comes Jesus onto the streets of the city, the very city that was central to the Jewish religious tradition. And the crowds, they chant, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna sounds like a declaration of praise, but Hosanna is more than a declaration of praise. It is a cry for salvation. To shout Hosanna is to cry out, give us freedom, save us, deliver us. And Jesus came for all those reasons, but not in the way that many people of the time thought. See, they were desiring that Jesus would set them free from Roman oppression like a political revolt. And Jesus came for freedom, for salvation and deliverance, but not in that way. John actually refers to Isaiah's Old Testament prophecy, where Isaiah said that eyes would be blinded, that hearts would be hardened, and they would not understand. They thought that Jesus had come for political or even military reasons. The Jewish people were considered lower tier in the Roman Empire, and there was hope that Jesus would be the one to lead them to prominence. You see, the crowd misunderstood and underestimated Jesus' purpose. 2,000 years ago, and now 2,000 years later, it's still happening. People misunderstand and underestimate Jesus' purpose. Jesus entered Jerusalem walking on the clothes of the poor, not wearing royal, royal robes. Jesus came to conquer sin with love, not to conquer a nation by force. Jesus came to lead people to their heavenly father, not to lead a political revolt. Jesus came to reign in our hearts, not to reign in a palace. John, reflecting on all of this, says that even the disciples did not get this at first. But after the resurrection, remembering these things that had been written about Jesus and remembering what had been done to Jesus, they put the pieces together. Look at what John writes about the faces he's seeing in the crowd as they're entering Jerusalem. Verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And bear witness means that they were just telling people, like, you have to see this man. You have to see the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. And human nature today is not all that much different. If you could see the person that had a reputation for raising a man from the dead, you probably would come out of your house to see who was walking by as well. That's what's happening. They're coming out to see the man who's become well-known as the person credited with raising Lazarus from the grave. Why did the crowd gather? Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he done this, had done this sign. They had heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus. Many wanted to be near Jesus. Many want to know about Jesus. Many are open to experiencing the miracles. Many will pursue Jesus in a time of desperation. As John records it right after the triumphal entry, some Greek people, they wanted to be near Jesus, and they approached the disciples, and the disciples tell Jesus, move down to verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In a very short time, it's going to become very clear why I came. Look down to verse 25. 
Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus talks about hating life in this world. Now this is not nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I guess I'll go eat worms. This is not like I'm terrible at life, I hate my life. This is not that. Jesus is talking about hating life in this world. And life in this world means life as it stands prior to a relationship with Jesus. Life living against God's ways. Living, putting self above others. Living for pleasures of the moment, even if it causes hurt to others. Living life under the self-deception that I'm smarter than God. Holding views that are approved by culture, but at odds with biblical truth. So the choice is to, to hold on, like a clinging, to hold on to a life that is against God and his ways that will ultimately lead to destruction or to release that, to hate that, and to say, I want to embrace the way of living. I want to embrace a decision that points toward eternal life with my loving Heavenly Father. Jesus says, John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The faces in the crowd, they have a choice. 2,000 years later, we have a choice. Follow Jesus, live life his way, turn from the thoughts, words, and actions that are against God. Pursue and align your way of living with the way that Jesus taught us to live. The crowds waved the palm branches and they laid down their clothes and Jesus speaks about a choice. When culture and Jesus go in different directions, where will you stand? I have this picture of water skiing. When you water ski with two skis and like the skis are starting to split, you can't have your feet in both. You have to choose. And so you can drop one ski and go to one. Slalom, right? It com there comes a point where you can't have your feet on both sides. Turn back in your Bible with me to Mark 15 if you've got your word. We're going to move back in our Bible. We're going to move ahead in the chronological timeline. This is uh, in the week of the triumphal entry. We're now past Sunday and we get to what we know as Good Friday. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. Jesus gathered for what we know as the Last Supper with his disciples. And the disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was arrested after a night of desperate prayer. There was a mock religious trial. And then Jesus is brought to Pilate, the Roman political leader, who was there in Jerusalem. Now watch what happens with the crowd. There was a tradition that Pilate would release one prisoner a year. And so Pilate turns to public opinion. Mark 15, 9, and Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He's doing a poll right there in the moment, consulting the crowd. Now, Pilate is observant. Verse 10, for Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. Pilate sees what's really going on here. 
The chief priests had portrayed that Jesus had to be stopped to protect religious tradition. But Pilate perceives the real reason, the real reason the chief priests are bringing Jesus forth is that they are full of envy. They feared losing their influence and position. Verse 11, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. So here is the pressure. The chief priests, they are the influencers of the day. We don't quite have something that would be a parallel here in Salem, Oregon in 2022. But think of the chief priests as the influencers. They are seen as the guardians of tradition, highly respected. And there's this other option to release Barabbas. Maybe some in the crowd already wanted to release Barabbas. He was a murderer who led a revolt against the city. And for some reason, maybe there was a fraction who wanted Barabbas released. So the chief priests press into this. Yes, Barabbas, keep crying for Barabbas. Verse 12, and Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? The question to the crowd, if you don't want Jesus to be released, then what do you want with him? Verse 13, and they cried out again, crucify him, execute him, put him to death, torture him on the cross until he dies. How quickly the voices in the crowd can change. How quickly culture can shift how quickly we can be deceived. When Jesus was who they thought he was, or thought the reason, they thought they understood the reason he came, they waved palm branches. When Jesus turned out to not be who they thought he was, they cried for a crown of thorn to be placed on his head. This is the same city where the crowds chanted Hosanna. They waved palm branches and laid their clothes down for Jesus to walk on. In verse 14, and Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Have you been following Pilate's steps here? Pilate perceives that the priests have selfish motives. Pilate says that the crowd's desire contradicts the title that they've given him, king of the Jews, and Pilate sees no evil in what Jesus has done. So Pilate has all this evidence to not do what the crowd is saying, to go against the crowd. But verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate was unwilling to go against the crowd. And here is the question for you and I here today. If the crowd and Christ collide and go in different directions, will we go with the crowd or will we stand with Jesus? When culture and Christ split in opposite directions, do we move with culture or do we stand with Christ? There's one part of the narrative that I've left out until now that I believe really captures the struggle of the human heart. And in John's narrative of Holy Week, between when he writes about the triumphal entry and before he gets to the crucifixion and resurrection, John writes this in John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, 
Many even of the authorities believed in him, Jesus. Did you catch that? John said, many of even the authorities, the influencers, believed in Jesus. But, however, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. Many of the influencers of the day believed in Jesus, but for fear of the authorities, would not come out and say that they were followers of Christ so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They were unwilling to give up their position in culture. They were unwilling to stand out from the crowd. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The religious elites were unwilling to risk or give up their influence to follow Jesus, even though they knew in their hearts. That's right. Every once in a while, I get an amen. Thank you. Many will abandon Jesus when it is culturally inconvenient to stand with him. Many would rather give up Christ than give up culture. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory. The crowds, they cheered Jesus on Palm Sunday, yet just days later, the crowds cried for his crucifixion at the urging of that day's influencers. So here is my challenge, church. Build your faith on a commitment to follow Christ that will not collapse under the pressure of cultural convenience. Maybe in a moment of honesty, you'd say, my heart has been hard. My eyes have been blinded to the reality of Christ, yet I can sense the Holy Spirit working on me today revealing to me the real purpose of Jesus. And today is a day that you want to make a first-time commitment or a recommitment to Christ. Maybe you'd say that you've allowed culture to infiltrate your way of thinking, but you know that it is at odds with biblical truth, and you say you want that to be past tense today. You want Christ to be the dominant thought in your mind. You want his word to be central to how you live thinking about those faces in the crowd. The disciples were there when Jesus entered Jerusalem. The people who celebrated the resurrection of Lazarus, they were telling everybody, you gotta come out and see this man. So the disciples recognized faces in the crowd of some of those waving the palm branches and taking clothes and laying them on the street for Jesus to walk on as he enters the city. Now we know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is being arrested, the disciples, they scattered. So we don't know if they were eyewitnesses to this exchange between Pilate and the crowd. But is it possible that John, who saw these people who he recognized, waving palm branches, shouting Hosanna, maybe people who he had come to know in the days and weeks leading up to the triumphal entry. Is it possible that John saw a person on the day of the triumphant entry use their mouth to shout Hosanna and then out from that same mouth just days later shout crucify him. 
some of you today are under pressure from family or people you know. So why don't you just, why do you have to be that Christian? Like, so, why, why don't you just not be so Christian? Wouldn't it just be easier? Maybe some people are urging you to abandon your faith in part or in total and return to the destructive things that actually drew you to Christ in the first place because you decided in the past you didn't want to live that way anymore. So where is your commitment today? Now, it's nice to think that we all just get to make our personal decision about who Jesus is. But I would remind you that the word tells us that the Father, our Heavenly Father, with an audible voice from heaven when Jesus was baptized, said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We move forward with the confidence that Jesus is the Son of God. We don't get to choose, that's who he is. Like, if you were to be pulled over by one of our fine Oregon state troopers. You don't get to decide in that moment, is this a state trooper? He is, or she is. We know that Jesus is the Son of God. We don't get to choose that. What we do get to choose is what we're gonna do about it. God loves us so much that he gave us the free will. Without free will, there is no love. There must be free will in order for there to be love. And God loves us so much that he gives us the free will to choose what we're going to do about the reality of his son. Are we going to choose Jesus? 2,000 years ago, the popular perspective on Jesus was to ignore a whole lot of evidence and decide that he's really there to bring political victory. Today, what would seem to be the popular thought for so many is to reduce Jesus to a good teacher or even a great teacher. But why? Why would we settle for a great teacher when we have a Savior? We pray that this week's message has been practical, encouraging, and challenging. Let us know if you made a first-time commitment or recommitment to following Christ. Visit peopleschurch.com and click Connect to share your decision with us. There is great value in being a part of a Christ-centered, Bible-teaching faith community. If you are looking for a church home, Pastor Tom Murray invites you to People's Church in Salem. Sunday morning and evening worship services, group Bible studies, relevant engaging activities for kids and youth in safe, secure environments. Watch messages anytime or plan your visit at peopleschurch.com.